Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to the Writers on Film podcast. My name is John Bleasdale, I'm a writer and critic and I guess happy Christmas because it's pretty much coming up to Christmas now so Merry Crimbo and all of that. Today we've got a, a, a real treat, a real gift if you like. Michael Leader and Jake Cunningham have produced a massively popular uh, podcast called Ghibliotech exploring in detail film by film the works of Miyazaki the famous Japanese director and producer of one of the uh, of some of the best animation um, in the history of film frankly to challenge Disney to that title I, I, I would argue they have written a book uh, based on their the the popular podcast series uh, Ghibliotech and uh, I read this book and that's what we're going to talk about as well as recommended books and a whole lot more we talk about uh, we cover quite a lot of ground so some Beatles analogies go in there as well um, I'm hoping for the podcast to continue without interruption during the the, the break uh, of the holiday season uh, so I'm that that sh- that should should happen if there is a break please forgive me but otherwise uh, I, I fully intend to to have episodes running all the way through continuously uh, we're past the six month mark now uh, by quite some way this has been entirely possible because of you the listener um, I have an absolutely no sponsorship or support from anybody else so it is the encouragement of the listeners on a very practical level as well lots of my guests have come as a direct result of listeners uh, suggesting them 
um, putting me in contact with them. So you are really and genuinely a part of this podcast. Otherwise, it's just me, but it isn't. It's me and it's all of you. So thank you very, very, very much from the bottom of my heart. It's made it's made this year a real pleasure. Uh, it's been one of the most positive aspects of this year uh, for me personally. So thank you very much. If you wish to support the podcast even more, you can also get a job in the advertising arm of Writers on Film by simply liking, subscribing, spreading the word on Twitter, on Facebook, on the social medias, and, uh, and that will help enormously as well. You can follow me personally, if you haven't already, on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. Yes, because the first place that I worked in film was at Curzon. So that was working with her, however long ago that was now. But is that where you two met as well? No, I've never worked for Curzon. So after but after working directly for Curzon, but while still producing their podcast, Jake started working with me at Little Dot Studios, um, at which point I was full-time doing Film 4's social media stuff and online editorial, which is why I was going to festivals and everything. And Jake was brought in to, to be commissioning um, on Random Acts with Catherine Bray. All oh, right. Cross like paths with Catherine. Short films for Channel 4. Yeah. And then... Th- th- that's years ago now and actually what we do has changed quite a lot in that time period <laughs> and jake is the cornerstone of the podcast team a little dot producing all sorts and i've been working on inside cinema the video essay strand for bbc iplayer for close to three years now as well so but ghibli attack is the thing that we still come together on that was started sort of uh through, through an interaction uh, in the workplace right yeah, He's absolutely. Read the book. There's the, <laughs> the background. I read the He's book. <laughs> He's read the book. Um, yeah, yeah, it did. Because uh, we, it was genuinely that we were sat across the desk from each other, um, and I hadn't seen any of the films, and Michael had. Um, but we both respectively, because Michael hosts Truth Movies, the Little White Lies podcast, and I produced that. Um, and at the time, I was hosting a podcast for Curzon, and so we were both doing quite similar kind of week of release magazine film shows uh, but I hadn't seen any Ghibli films Michael for some reason thought they were good um, and uh, decided that he'd give me the a nice cheap film course in them it's much cheaper than my degree and I actually ended up with a book out of it yeah and I, d- I don't know how much we credit Catherine with this publicly but I think she was the person that said you two should turn this into a podcast and so she gave us that kit that nudge that kickstart to start thinking about it in that way, and it's definitely Ghibli and not Ghibli, right? So you're you you can you can you have you have the Italian perspective yeah, on this, John. So I, it would be how would you pronounce it if you were speaking Italian? It'd be Ghibli or something, wouldn't it? Yeah, it'd be Ghibli, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be. I think so. The the Maserati or the, the there are various like cars and planes and all sorts that are called Ghibli. But so Miyazaki. Uh, one of the co-founders of the studio, their main filmmaker, at least popularity-wise, is obsessed with planes and the history of aviation and engineering. So is a big fan of the Ghibli, which was a Caproni interwar plane. Right. Um, and however, because of that, that word came up as a potential name for the studio. However, because in Japanese, 
the soft G is not necessarily a word that a, a sound they use in their um in their phonology. So gibbery would be how they pronounce that word. And so it became ghibli from that. Although everybody concerned at Ghibli, be that Miyazaki or their former president Toshio Suzuki, have been on record saying there's no real correct way of pronouncing it because it's based on a mispronunciation anyway. And they <laughs> slightly regret even calling it Ghibli if they knew that it would cause this, this trouble years later. It's a little bit like the Beatles sort of title. Uh, you know, when, once you get, when you name something, there's a real chance that it's just a placeholder for, you know, we'll think about the name later and then you're stuck with it. <laughs> well, before before it was called Ghibliotech, it was just called uh, the Ghibli Men. <laughs> The Ghibli men. <laughs> that, that's, that's, our, that's our quarrymen equivalent, I'm sure. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Do you have a Pete yeah, Best? We... Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know if we do. do we, who, if, who just, so Catherine, Catherine was... Bray would be the sort of Brian Epstein in the... Mm, well, no, because she's kind of coming in. She Is she like the Jimmy Nickel? Like, if she... She goes there, there just I, before, I, but would, I, it was I essential. To so it she's at almost the like the Astrid Lindgren if we're, if we're going to go 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 deep into Beatles lore. So she gave us the leather jackets and took some important photographs uh, to get us yeah. kickstarted with our mythology of the of the formation of the of the group, so to speak. If we had a fifth Beatle equivalent, I suppose Steph Watts, our producer, is now actually on microphone with us on some episodes. Uh, most of the main episodes, in fact, and we have Harold McShiel, who's our producer, who I guess. It's kind of George Martin-ish. But yeah, oh, that, that, you're really tempting me there, John, to go down the route <laughs> of having the Billy, the Billy Preston, going to have the, the Epstein, you're going to have everybody. <laughs> well, and it's, it's such a shame that three quarters of the way through doing the podcast, Michael died and we had to find a replacement. <laughs> the, the Michael is death, the Michael is dead rumour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're barefoot on the cover of your podcast. I remember that. Yeah, and there's a VW in the background. Yeah. It really, I, I, it's, it's amazing how much of it actually fits the, the paradigm, the Beatles paradigm here. Peter Jackson, uh, I hope you're listening. <laughs> so, oh yeah god there's so many hours of podcasts that have never been used in 50 years time how much b-roll have you got oh god yeah uh, it's all in like it's in lovely flac format as well and so but no one knows about it and god. we're just gonna have to get someone to dig it out Flack. let's wait 50 years and see flack is a sort of betamax of podcasting <laughs> it's actually better and all the rest of it but nobody uses it much so let's uh so in terms of ghibli let's i'll 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 uh i'll pronounce it for the sake of consistency uh like that so michael what was your first sort of introduction into the into this world what made you such an enthusiast and a and a evangelist well i was i was always into well, I guess I'm, I'm just the right age to have picked up on Ghibli in the late 90s, early 2000s, as their international renown was growing. So my first exposure to them was a slightly dodgy VCD of Princess Mononoke that was doing the rounds at high school when I was 15 or something, 14 maybe. Um, and, that, and it was being sent around the friendship group as this is so much better than Dragon Ball Z or whatever we'd be watching on Cartoon Network at the time, you've got to watch it. It's um, complex and violent and strange. And so I remember, and I can actually date it to a specific weekend when I watched that, because I remember watching that with a group of friends at my house and then going out to watch Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone 
at um at, at a multiplex near Bury in Greater Manchester. So that was the film, and it it was just that sense of sophistication, perhaps that slight strangeness as well, but knowing that this was something that was more complex than anything else I'd be watching at the time, perhaps, but also it was the perfect age where everything you discover in those early teenage years is blowing your mind and seems like you're the first person to have discovered anything, kind of like discovering David Bowie for myself at that time, even though by the early 2000s, he was on the Michael Parkinson circuit doing greatest hits tours. It felt like listening to some of his early albums was um, was transformative. Similarly, discovering Ghibli was. Although off the back of Princess Mononoke, then their other films weren't really available. And you'd have to go down some dodgy routes buying box sets from Hong Kong on eBay in order to watch the other ones. So it wasn't really until a handful of years later when Spirited Away actually got a national UK cinema release um, that I was able to then continue the journey. And that was where you'd get quad posters with quotes from Jonathan Ross saying, this is the greatest film I've ever seen. Um, that, you know, he's a bit, of, perhaps a bit of a joke now, but it's kind of easy to forget that he was the national, nationally recognised film critic for the BBC with, with a bit of sway over mainstream casual film fans like I was then. And even beforehand with the incredibly strange film show. Well, in- I'd missed all of that. I was too young for all that to, to know him in the 80s. I'd only know that stuff when I'd pick up an Evil Dead box set and it would include like his his profile of Sam Raimi and Evil Dead 2 from, from the 80s. So I'd missed out on all that. So to me, he was the guy that was a, ho- uh, a team captain on They Think It's All Over or something. Um, and then also the film, the film show host. So after that, it was almost perfectly placed because I could see Spirited Away at the cinema and then off the back of that, Optimum Releasing, who then were bought out by Studio Canal, started releasing all the films on DVD and then every subsequent film would get a proper theatrical release. So in terms of that, my generation, because of course there are people who are older who were able to see some one-off screenings of films like, I guess, Castle in the Sky was on telly in the early 90s in the UK. I missed out on that. But for terms of my generation, I had a front row seat to all these films coming out and the horizon broadening almost by the year. So I was very much in there, locked in. And when I started writing about film after university, I would always try to pick up those commissions to review the films. So in fact, actually, maybe one of the Venice festivals we might have met at would have been The Wind Rises. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. Which was a huge uh, experience for me, not only being able to review a new Ghibli film on release, but before other Western critics had been able to get their teeth into it, as well as a film that was very much hyped and had a lot of expectation behind it. And how about you, Jake? You, so you, you're, you're basically getting, you know, your hand held by Mike, Michael as you go through the, the, the canon. Are you doing it chronologically or are you just, how, how, are you, how are you experiencing it? Well, I suppose my experience of them is, is the podcast in a way. Mm. Um, so go back three and a bit years when we started it. The goal was to provide a kind of very ungatekeepery, very welcoming accessible route into these films and the way that we approached that was that me having not seen any of them would react to my first time viewing on the podcast so that that kind of became the second half of each episode of the podcast the first being Michael setting up the context and the history of them and then I jump in without 
having all of the weight, I suppose, that Michael's talking about of that knowledge of um, and that cultural legacy and thinking, right, uh, trying to be as objective as possible at the beginning. Like, is this film actually any good? Um, and then as we went through the series, I learned more about them. And then you gradually kind of bring that weight to them. And by the end of it, um, I've... Uh, well, read a book about them. So like, <laughs> I learned I enough um, along the way. Uh, but it, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a unique experience having that kind of uh, live diary of appreciation there in the archive for people to ever go and listen to. I'm thinking at the start, particularly in the first series, where uh, we do Princess Mononoke. And uh, first time around on that, it's, that's such a... It's such a big film it's like it's tackling so many ideas like creatively it's quite incredible and i think there's a lot of there's a lot of things that i was reading at the time of my first viewing not being that familiar with miyazaki's work as issues with the film like thinking like there are these characters whose goals aren't quite clear or the how the geography of the space might not work together that well um and then the more i watch it the more, more i realize how intentional that is and that he views all these characters as existing in um, moral grey areas, and that there isn't a goodie or a baddie, and that the the fog of war and the mayhem of war, and the way that it blurs the lines between territories and boundaries and no man's lands, that that's all part of it. He he wants that to be the case. Um, and so when we were researching the book, and I had to go back and listen to our old episodes, and I listened back to that, I'm thinking, what what are you talking about, man? <laughs> um, but um, to answer what you said, asked about how we approached it. So there's a clue there in that we were, we did Princess Mononoke in series one. This wasn't chronological. It was curated. Um, so I suppose Michael took his best film lecturer approach to it. And I think a good a good lecturer won't just throw you in at the beginning. They'll, they will want to hook you first and then kind of take you on a route through them that's going to most intrigue you and most engage you in the content because um, of course what is a Ghibli film other than content um, and we started like with big hitters in that first six episode run there was My Neighbor Totoro in there there was Princess Mononoke in there there was Grave of the Fireflies in there um, and then two more choice picks uh, so deep cuts of Whisper of the Heart and Only Yesterday films that I'd not even heard of barely encountered um, and so that was Michael, I, I don't know, like kind of giving you a little tease of the hard stuff as well. Like saying, hey, come on, here's, here's the stuff to get you in the door. And you say like, but look what I've got behind this cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a tasseled curtain at the back of the shop. Yeah. <laughs> stuff to slip into the brown paper bag, so to speak. But I, I think that approach worked so well for the podcast because by the time we got to films like... The Wind Rises or The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, which were two very um, two films that had the weight of legacy on them. One did turn out to be a Satakahata's final film because he died um, not long after the film was released. And at the time, it was, The Wind Rises was billed as Miyazaki's final film, although he's proved us wrong with that and come out of retirement to make another one that's taking an age to make. When we got to those, it was a real joy to see Jake kind of come with the expectations of seeing all the other films, hearing the backstory to all of those, and then be able to decode those films in that way, rather than if it is a straightforward chronological schlep, of course we would have got to that 
point anyway because they're late in the chronology but this curated approach gives him then the tools it's i guess it is like pure lecture stuff isn't it pure um how to put together a an academic course you want to then give the students the tools to then um to then figure it out themselves yeah the um yeah okay okay pause <laughs> gotta turn off that okay um well my experience of ghibli is a bit odd uh, uh, in that i actually started watching him without knowing i was watching him because um i've got two daughters and uh they would be watching heidi on italian tv and the animated heidi is huge here it's just absolutely and nobody necessarily knows it's miyazaki although Miyazaki's huge in italy as well it's got a massive following here uh, uh as well as a lot a lot of sort of anime stuff um and japanese animation uh generally uh, so I was watching Heidi, and then I think a friend of ours um, sent us Spirited Away. So that must have been mid-90s. Oh, no, what am I talking about? That must have been 2000s. And then and then that became like a favourite of the girls. It was like uh, and, uh, Totoro. <laughs> became the uh became the the the, the absolute favorite and then they they went through the whole lot and i remember watching princess monaco and thinking uh, monaco and thinking what the what the heck are we <laughs> what the heck are we showing the girls this is crazy stuff uh but it was really it was like yes they watched a bit of disney and everything but it was really like this was the rolling stones to the the, the disney's beatles if you like I like you throwing them, them going for Beauty and the Beast, and then you throw on the next pr Disney princess film, Princess Mononoke, and it's like, and there's guys, there's a guy's arms yeah. that have been blown off. <laughs> <laughs> Creeping corruption in black, sort of squirmy stuff, all over the place. Uh, no, but I, I like how you mention you know, the, uh, series like Heidi being on TV in Italy because yes, our perspective and how we've covered it on the podcast is very much defined by a British perspective and something we come back to time and again is how our understanding of these filmographies and careers and filmmakers is completely defined by the access and the release status. So we have in the UK, the entire Ghibli catalog now on DVD, Blu-ray on Netflix, often in cinemas as well. But you go and talk to someone from France or Spain or Italy, they've been seeing things like Heidi, Future Boy Conan, TV series that, Miyazaki and Isao Takata made before they went independent which have never been released in the UK they're sort of bread and butter for TV schedules over there so we interviewed one thing we've done later in the podcast is we opened up once we've talked as much about Ghibli as we want to or we feel we have to feel we need to we've invited guests from the entire breadth of the creative arts to talk about the impact that Ghibli's had on them and we had Enrico Casarossa who um, directed Luca, the Pixar film that came out earlier this year, back end of last year. Um, and he, he that is a film that is completely steeped in Miyazaki influence, but it's pre-Ghibli Miyazaki. So it was really interesting to dig into that with him because he grew up in Italy and it's Heidi, it's Future Boy Conan instead. So the touchstones are different depending on all countries, which is really fascinating. And it's interesting how Heidi is connected to the later Ghibli as well, in the sense that it's that sort of middle European sort of aesthetic of uh, pastoral and, and all the rest of it. Well, uh, it's something that we, we keep coming back to on the podcast is this very European approach to landscape that they have throughout the filmography. And by even going back to the right at the start, um, so Castle in the Sky, the first 
film officially made under the Studio Ghibli name. Um, the mining town from that, that was inspired by Miyazaki taking a trip to Wales in the mid 80s. Uh, and that carries through right through to Kiki's Delivery Service, where there was a trip to Norway that inspired that town. And then you see Hal's Moving Castle and Hal's hometown, as per the original book, is meant to be in Wales. Uh, so they often get kind of pigeonholders like, oh, it's so Japanese, these films. Uh, but they are very much international films. Absolutely. And if you ever come across Ghibli, maybe in a more academic context, amazing work being done. But they're often talked about in the context of Shinto spiritualism or Japanese storytelling and folk tales, uh, Japanese political context. But the filmmakers were brought up on European literature. Isao Takahata was not an animator. He didn't go to art school. He studied French literature at university and their touchstones are European. So it's always quite interesting when people talk about Ghibli being so Japanese, as Jake said, because in some ways from their storytelling, you know, uh, backbones taken from European folk tales all the way to the specific books they're adapting. It's a lot of European stuff. And also politically, I mean, you talk about him going to Wales and, and uh, there's a bit in the book where you talk about him uh, in uh, England in the 80s and um, going uh, and, uh, right in the middle of the miners' strike and how sort of he has a lot of sympathy for that. And also, likewise, um, in terms of his fascination with uh, all things Italian and Italian engineering, that links into sort of fascistic, uh, well, problems with fascism. You know, the flight was a huge deal for Mussolini and especially uh, Mussolini's son uh, who I think was sort of the guy who ran that that part of the of the state so yeah it's it's like maybe it's the way as sort of the way we look at filmmakers sometimes as too crudely nationalistic when it comes to looking outside of a of a European context well I think the the con what what you say about Italy is really interesting because Porco Rosso which is uh, an underseen Miyazaki film and it's his Kind of, for me, the closest to a, like tales, tales of real adventure, boy's own annual type story, and the great line from that that's off, like quoted so often, it's to better be a pig than a fascist, and it's one of his most political lines, really, um, and it also ties to this dilemma that's there throughout all of Miyazaki's work, which is that he absolutely loves aeroplanes, can't resist them. But he's so anti-war at the same time. And so he's, he's got this love of planes and Porco Rosso filled with these incredible sequences. I would say contains the best sequence in a single Ghibli film when goes the plane kind of flies above the sky into what appears to be an air, a heaven for aeroplanes. It's astonishing. And he holds these machines in such high regard. Um, but as you say, John, like they are also a symbol of specifically fascism in Italy, but of war. You go to a film like The Wind Rises, his most recent film, and he's re like directly wrestling that with a, a guy that is a designer that wants to design a beautiful thing, but that thing is going to become the plane that kills millions of people. Absolutely. It's a, it is a really fascinating dilemma and conflict at the heart of Miyazaki. And he's the sort of filmmaker that's been you know, exalted to the level of being pure genius and he's never done anything wrong but there are these wonderful naughty contradictions i love the story early in his career he was an animator on the 1970s japanese anime version of the moomins i don't know if you ever saw that one john but that there was one particular episode that he worked on i think um potentially uncredited that tova jansen hated because he threw a load of tanks in it <laughs> it's like the most un idea to have in it but he he 
is very much a, a, an artist who, as a break between films, would write like comics for model enthusiasts who like to build little miniature scale models of planes and tanks because he loved that's what he would do if he had spare time but then his films have these political textures about pacifism or anti-war rhetoric within there or the, the murkiness in between the two uh, so the, there is that fascinating conflict and yes as you say the labor relations that uh, they they go all the way back so obviously why he was responding so strongly to the miners' strikes um, of the 80s when he was in the UK. When Miyazaki and Takata's initial relationship was formed when they met at a labor union meeting at the studio they worked at. So that's very much at the heart of it. And even though anime in Japan is very underpaid and has all sorts of real issues when it comes to workers' uh, health and rights, um, Ghibli always tried to be at the forefront of making that a bit more stable, a bit more healthy. And I think that's something that Miyazaki was always very, very, um, very interested in doing. Animation in general is such a labor intensive uh, form of filmmaking that, you, you know, it's uh, it, it seems to seems interesting from that sort of political point of view of, uh, you know, bringing out the invisible workers and, and, uh, and making a bigger deal of them. Um, I, I was, I, I always uh, thought as well, just in terms of that, um, he that he seems to be someone who's perfectly happy to make a pastoral, to make a peaceful, a, a beautiful sort of peaceful uh, image, a landscape, or whatever. But he's also there's there's also a certain fervor in destroying it that um, that, that that he gets as well, and and the violence, you know. Uh, it, there, there's a relish to it, uh, uh, even if. On the on the text level, if you'd like, he's uh, he's condemning it. Well, and that was um, Diana Wynne Jones's issue with *Howl's Moving Castle*, was um, that there's no war in the original *Howl's Moving Castle* book. That's not part of the plot whatsoever, and that's something that he creates for that film. And I think you can't deny when watching that film that he thinks that those fight sequences are stunning, and like there is an almost uh, like there's almost a regard for him and for for Hal taking part in this destruction, and I don't think I think he, he he learns from that. And you watch something like The Wind Rises, where there's an incredible earthquake sequence, and you suddenly get the physicality of it. You get the ground level experience, and you get the human impact of it. Um, but it's not like he nails it every time. Like Princess Mononoke, which comes many years before Hal's Moving Castle, I think does hit that hit that mark. Um, but it, yeah, it's really fascinating. It's such, a, such a curious element of him as a filmmaker. And it's not something that I think is perhaps initially obvious as well. Uh, I think he kind of gets put into a bit of a cutesy old grandpa of animation uh, world. And he's just memed to death for saying funny things. And there's a lot there's a lot more to him than that. It's, it's something that's such a gift. And we've, we've had this gift twice over now. By doing the podcast and writing a book, being able to really go in depth, film by film, but also weaving the tapestry between those films, um, that we don't you don't not not usually afforded that when you're writing your fifteen hundred word fifteenth anniversary feature, <laughs> celebrating a film. So, 
Miyazaki's relationship with conflict and war and violence really does change over the years. And there are a couple of these world events that really change him as a storyteller. If you go back and watch his films in the 1980s, like Naushka, The Valley of the Wind and Castle in the Sky, they come from more of a fantasy action adventure perspective. And as in a response to those more cartoonish, violent, violent films, he then makes Kiki's Delivery Service and My Name is Totoro much more grounded, um, children's movies much more accessible much much more um free of that sort of conflict and peril but then this is something that jake actually maybe discovered in, in parallel with me or just before me because he read the manga that miyazaki uh, wrote and illustrated of naushka the valley of the wind which lasted from the early 80s to the early 90s he kept working on it even after the film had finished and through the pages of that film you see him growing in terms of his uh, com complexity the complexity of his worldview inspired by the conflicts in Yugoslavia of the late 80s early 90s the fall of, of the um, the Iron Curtain and everything happening in Eastern Europe he changes and he realizes that it's very messy the world is messy. We're not going to ever be past conflicts. You know, you think he's very much of that generation which thought that the dropping of the bomb would change everything and surely no one will ever think of going into conflict again because we've seen the worst we could see. And he was horrified by those events in the early 90s. And then once again by the war on terror and the Middle Eastern conflicts um, uh, of, of in sort of post-2001. And that very much has an, a, a specific impact on Howl's Moving Castle and how he then adds in this very murky war that Howl is pulled into that um, kills his soul, destroys his soul, and he can't and he, ha he can't really be saved from it if he's going to be engaged in that conflict. So he there is something uh, while he does revel in all that, he is also wrestling with it himself about his point of view looking at the world and you read any interview with Miyazaki from about 1993 onwards and he says the world's going to end any day I'm not going to give the children any hope the only hope we can have is to enjoy life while we have it <laughs> <laughs> Allegria <laughs> sorry that's an Italian word meaning happiness <laughs> lightness um, yeah I mean there's even a brilliant bit in the book where you uh, mention uh, about him getting his little lifetime achievement award at Venice and the interviews are all we're all doomed <laughs> you know? I mean, what the hell <laughs> I wouldn't have children <laughs> it's that sort of uh, you know terrible sort of as you say that's what jake said earlier as well about the sort of the cutesy memes of miyazaki uh you know where you have a black and white photograph and some inspirational quote next to him i mean that's that's all kind of a little bit nauseating put get put beside the complexity of his actual vision i suppose no, nauseating is the word but i suppose that speaks to how um you know multi layered the, the appeal of Ghibli is internationally, particularly in the online world. And, um, you know, there are moments within even the most conflicted and uh, murky, you know, murky moralistic films that he's made where there are these moments of beauty. And there's this thing which is online, which is called Ghibli vibes and the aesthetic of Ghibli films where people do zoom in on the Howl's Moving Castle, a film that, as we just said, is very much born out of him thinking the world is doomed because of American imperialism. Um, he has the best fried breakfast scene ever committed to, to cinema. Uh, just in the middle of that, something really wonderful. And there's always a little, these little characters and these little moments that you can enjoy and enrich your 
your life and give you a different perspective on the world around you these scenes so i can i can understand how the you have audiences that can approach these in different ways and of course it is just a byproduct of online social media discourse where these things will be boiled down into memes to the point where the there's this famous meme that's attributed to him which is a subtitle of a, from a documentary called the kingdom of dreams of madness where he says anime was a mistake and of course the the the, the, the huge joke there is this guy who has worked so hard to popularize anime as an art form worldwide is saying that it's a mistake he never actually said that is the thing so there's there's now this extra layer of artifice on top of um the memeability of the grumpy old bloke persona so it's 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 very interesting from the perspective of um, online fandom i suppose as well I'm just thinking of the food as well, but <laughs> I can't. I can't escape uh, thinking of my girls watching Ponyo and watching Tot uh, Totoro and thinking and saying, "Oh, we want that for dinner. We <laughs> we want to have that." Mm -hmm. You know, the, um, which is which is funny because there's again there's that sort of re attraction repulsion in Spirited Away where the food becomes the problem. You know, the, the people mm. turn into pigs because they eat too much. So, um. the the food is just. It's so special though, isn't it? Like the the ramen in Ponyo, like the magic in that. And the fact that it's not a, it's not fine dining at a, a fancy restaurant. It is absolutely everyday food that anyone watching the film can make. Like that is an achievable piece of magic for everyone in the audience. And that sensibility runs throughout so much of their work. They're not asking you to go to this fantasy world and kind of lose yourself in it. And it's so entirely different from how you live now. They're saying your fantasy world is this world, but you can have a beautiful fried breakfast if you want. You don't need to be part of this, this war-torn battleground. Uh, and you get all, the, all these little moments where you can take a breath, like in Spirited Away, when Chihiro has this amazing red bean bun and... She sits at the edge of the bathhouse looking out across the horizon. And it's just asking audiences to just to take that breath, to take that moment, to have your your time with your red bean bun where you can breathe in everything that you've done that day and consider what you've learned and your experience. And you, you'd never get that in Western films, really, to, to the, where you get that encouragement to actually look at the details around you and look at how lovely it is to fry these pieces of fish and make bento lunch boxes for all the other housemates that you live with it's it's just magic really isn't it <laughs> one of the talking about the sort of the memification of miyazaki and to some extent the just the the global impact that he has had Good. um I think one of those, one of the key films there has got to be, has got to be uh, My Neighbor to Totoro. I keep saying Totoro because that, that's the song I've got in my head. Totoro. Hey, Totoro. You, like, we say this at all of our events when people bring up pronunciations. Of, Just say it how you like. <laughs> okay. If it, if it means you're enjoying it and there's more of a chance of other people getting excited about it. How you, however you like. Okay, Totoro, Totoro. <laughs> I'm just going to sing the song every single time I mention his name. Um, that's that. I mean, uh, you know, you make the point in the book as well that the that the actual Ghibli's actual sort of studio mascot um, is coming from this film, King Totoro, and um, 
but yeah, but yeah, I mean, uh, my wife was saying to me, oh, we should get tattoos for Christmas. And I was like, what? Okay, well, what would we get? And she was like, oh, why, why, why not Totoro? So it's, it's like, uh, it's, it seems to, to, to be driving people crazy, this movie. Well, it's a funny you mentioned tattoos, because uh, Michael, if, if, if this were not a podcast and people could see it, uh, there could, there's a tattoo of Totoro in your very home right now, isn't there? Well, the, the, on the leg of my partner, yeah. <laughs> but also, the, the, the so she got um, a, a tattoo when our son was born um, of the three types of Totoro, but sort of done as a sort of two parents and a child on on her leg. But then off the, uh, we, we, that was actually taken then from um, a sketch that... That was, that was that was given to us earlier by you know when when our, our son was born. So yeah, I, I think John, if you ever go, if you're thinking of Ghibli tattoo inspiration, go to Instagram because I think the third most popular Ghibli related hashtag after Ghibli Studio Ghibli hashtag Studio Ghibli hashtag Ghibli Art is then hashtag Ghibli tattoo. That it's it, absolutely um, yeah really popular worldwide and artists, tattoo artists who um, specialize in that stuff. And it's true, I suppose that character, even though on release wasn't a, a sensation, it took a while for things to get going. It was more of a hit on video. And then when merchandising came around, that, that, that character of King Totoro is bigger than Ghibli in some ways, in terms of the stuffed toys, in terms of the ways that, when other artists want to nod to Ghibli in, with a cameo or a or a homage in some way, it's usually with some sort of Totoro-like figure. Um, the um, the film that stars Totoro that's made the most money worldwide is Toy Story Three. Yeah, that is that is the key cameo. Um, but also, if you go and look at the likes of um, the likes of The Simpsons or Bob's Burgers or any of those kind of american cartoons that do ghibli references there's a there's a there's, a, there's some totoro in the mix there it's also just fascinating just knowing how wide the love of that film is we talk about it in the book that akira kurosawa was a fan of my neighbor totoro and that's kind of mind-blowing to us because he's you can't you almost don't think of kurosawa and miyazaki as filmmakers that exist in the same you know century but of course they do because Kurosawa was making films up to the mid nineties. But the fact that Kurosawa was engaging with this and loving it, although his favorite character in My Neighbor Totoro was the cat bus, not Totoro himself. Um, just so he's gone against the grain a little bit there. T typical Kurosawa. Maybe this, like we mentioned so much about the, the storytelling prowess of Ghibli and the details, but as, as animators and designers, they're so skillful and like they come up with these incredible creations. And what's great about Totoro is that he's got that thing that so many animators are searching for at the start of designing something, which is cutting the perfect silhouette. And you think uh, Mickey Mouse is such an iconic character because you can essentially draw Mickey Mouse if you draw three circles and people can look at that silhouette and they know who it is straight away. And it's no coincidence that Totoro was created and then became the Studio Ghibli logo because he he has that same Mickey Mouse effect of you instantly know exactly who this character is, where it's come from, 
and you can recreate it in a handful of lines. He, he is he is an icon, and and it, that is almost then the provocation or the challenge for you, five year old kid watching this film, draw your own because it is so almost it's it's achievable as as a design, and it speaks volumes that when the world was put into its first lockdown last year, Toshio Suzuki not an animator or any of the films he's a producer but a great calligraphy artist in his own right did a how-to tutorial on the ghibli channels as to how to draw your own totoro and and tried to you know engaged the world in doing that Mm. i I should say we are terrible at it when we were doing the book tour um someone some poor person asked us to draw rather than <laughs> sign our names <laughs> this is in pen we can only do this once the moment and of we truth. had to get up toshio suzuki's tutorial and draw along with it and i mean yeah he is even though he says it's so simple he does a very good job and much better than we ever did so you guys are not good at you you're not good at drawing these things then you're not uh, at all i mean i think about i mean, think about totoro as well is the in terms of the actual film and and it, I was sort of thinking about this when Jake mentioned about storytelling as well, because Totoro see, feels to me, and some of the, the, this applies as well to some of the other films, that the narrative as such, the story as such, is like the. Th- Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just sixty bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince—they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and three hundred sixty-five day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Third or fourth or fifth most important thing, and and I, it, the the thing that Totoro gave to I'm sure to my daughters and also to me when I was watching it over their shoulders, was a place to be, a place to just an environment to live in, and um, and there was a sort of timelessness to it that that meant that. It, I mean, timelessness in the sense that a, a particular summer can be timeless, if you know what I mean. I mean, I know that I'm tying myself up in time paradoxes and knots here, but but you, do you see what I mean? That that that's absolutely. I think that that is hundred percent what you get out of the film. Um, it is more this kind of sense of space, time, detail, character. Um, it's not following those. 22 Pixar story beats that you must hit to make sure your audience cries come the third reel. Uh, it's, for me, the most comforting of all their films. Um, I think it's their best film. Um, when we went into lockdown that um, that first time last year, I watched it four times. And I think it is it's kind of offering you kind of a, a balance i think you watch it like when when things are 
quite chaotic, even though it's about this kind of owl, bird, chicken thing that lives in a tree and plays on a ocarina. It's incredibly grounding because although you do have this character and you've got a bus that's also a cat, it's just watching people clean a house, have a bath, uh, like look at how beautiful a tree is uh, and just offering you those little insights, especially when you all you can do is stare at the own same four walls around you for six months. Uh, I found incredibly rewarding. Yeah, my, I mean, I mentioned earlier, I was sort of watching it over the shoulders of my two girls. And I mean, the reason they were so hooked to it was they, they liked May and, and, and Saski. And that was the, that, they would call each other by the, those names and sort of. Oh, the, the way that they just barrel around the house. Yeah, like, yeah. And like May screams, like that'll give, like you could, after watching it four times, get a bit of a headache. <laughs> but it's like, it's like two little girls that have a dynamic that you would rarely see in a Western kids film at all. And the fact that they move to this house and they say it could be haunted and their first reaction is that that's really cool. <laughs> 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 And there's this thing that lives in the woods and he's great and everything is just such has such a positive spin to it. Uh, you're not going to go and run away from this film whatsoever. It is just a totally embracing thing, which is Totoro himself too, I suppose. Yeah, a warm hug of a film, if ever there was one. Um, when you came to writing the book, was the, uh, uh, I mean, it must have felt great sort of um, having a moment to sort of solidify all those arguments and all those uh observations and discoveries that you'd made through the journey of the podcast well yeah it, it was really good for me john because you know it meant uh, i because i actually had to do some work for this book because michael could obviously just look at the notes that he'd made for the podcast and just copy them out um you know i had to have some original <laughs> thoughts um because <laughs> the, the the book for the listener who hasn't read it which is i'm sure most of them um the book is divided up into the context and history of each film. And then I have to do a review of it. Uh, and so Michael always had that job in the podcast. But um, for me, it was great. And it was great to go back and really like refocus on the films and make those discoveries um, and kind of reposition myself on them. Um, so there are some where each time I watch them, you think, yeah, this is great the first time. And it's just as brilliant now. And that's My Neighbor Totoro or Porco Rosso. Um but then a Princess Mononoke where you get more from it each time um, and the kind of more layers unfurl. Uh, or something that I thought was kind of just a bit slight, um, like Arietti. And the, the, the review that I ended up writing in the book ended up being a lot more positive than I expected it to be. Um, just because like, people have this with... When, when you write... You can make any plan that you like, but then sometimes it just you just kind of go with it. And then you realize that you're actually very happy with what you've written, even if it's not exactly what you thought you were going to write in the first place. And for, for my side, I did do some work. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Jake. But the great the great thing for me was... Um, when we made the podcast, we had such a specific structure and we would time each element of the podcast as, as well as we could. So as things went along and sometimes some, the context or history, the background would become more complex or um, at least longer, we'd, I'd have to cut into that. So it was the opportunity to go back and really hit the books again, find all the stuff that we didn't have time for to discuss on the podcast. But also starting the podcast mid 2018 there were new books 
on Miyazaki and Ghibli coming out. Some books were the first on certain topics in the English language. There was a book on Grave of the Fireflies that the BFI published by Alex Du Dr. Witt, which is which was and still is the the only book solely about the work of Isao Takahata to be to be given a, a, a you know a proper public publication in the UK. So being able to incorporate all of that as well and then weave the story. When you do podcasts, you do think about things rather individually, modularly. But then when writing these things chapter by chapter, these sections of context and history, you can you find those recurring themes, those recurring threads or the developing vision and perspective. How, you, know, you can then feel how many times Miyazaki says he's going to retire or how many times over the 40 year period he decides to hand over the reins to a new generation, but really can't let go. And then the Ghibli's awkward relationship with promoting talent from within the ranks, things like that being able to weave those elements together across and form that narrative across the, the book, whilst also then delivering your one-stop shop chapter on each film was what was really, yeah, really felt like a treat to me as somebody who's always wanted to go deep on these films. It was lovely as well just to, to be able to have control and make our case for the films that we wanted to in the word count. So we, we knew how many words that we had to hit and we knew how many films we had to cover and how and we carved them up in a specific way to allow for us to maybe focus less on ones that we felt maybe didn't need as much uh, that have maybe had a lot of coverage elsewhere. Uh, so, for instance, A House Moving Castle, a film that neither of us particularly love that much and everyone knows quite a bit about. And so we thought, well, we can reduce the word count on that and that will allow us to write 2000 on Whisper of the Heart, a film that we want to champion and there is not a big audience for. And this was our way of kind of working our way through that filmography and saying Miyazaki and like the late 90s and early 2000s are great, but also take a look at this other stuff too because there are other directors there and there are lots of different styles of films too. So have, have a go with them as well. Yeah, so we were very, yeah, very, very, it was very important to us to shine the spotlight as equally as possible on Isao Takahata because he is a an equal and complementary genius to Miyazaki working in a very different way, much more experimental and iconoclastic. And as he went, became older, he was much more of a, an artist in the sense that he needed um, patronage either by the money that Miyazaki was bringing in with his more popular films or literally an endowment from an executive from a broadcaster to be able to make Princess Kaguya at his own speed and to his own vision. So it was important for us to give space for that. Also films as well that have been controversial for, for some reviewers. Like we have The Red Turtle in there, which is the film that has the Totoro logo on the front of it. So we're counting it as Ghibli when it had its festival releases in, in Cannes, etc. Toshio Suzuki and Isao Takahata were there on stage to introduce it. However, it was wholly animated in Europe. Um, only really involved Japanese people for like creative production and other uh, you know, development reasons. But we put it as part of that canon more to show that their horizons are broad. 
you, you, they, their influence, but also their connections spill out. And that is one you can actually point to and say, in the final years of his career, Isao Takahata leveraged all this, the legacy of Ghibli to be able to get Michael Dr. Whip, who is a, a great animator, is a great animator and filmmaker, been working since the 1980s, but get him to make a feature after he'd won an Oscar for his one of his shorts. So that was really important to us as well, is to focus on Ghibli, but also then wherever we could broaden out the conversation as well. And so in terms of the future of Ghibli, do you see that's the way it's going? It's, it's gonna go become this expanding brand that will, and studio, which will you know include a lot, lot of other influences? Well, I think they've always been quite canny business operators. Um, a lot of the book, uh, is championing Toshio Suzuki, the the puppet master of the whole operation, really, uh, and all his wily dealings. Um, and I think when they announced that Miyazaki was coming back for a new film, but also that they were animating at the speed of about thirty seconds a month, uh, and that coincided pretty soon after with a deal that all of the films had suddenly arrived on Netflix, and uh, maybe they needed to get some money to keep the lights on. And that there's going to be a Ghibli theme park. There's already a Ghibli museum. Um, the Ghibli theme park opens next autumn. I mentioned Mickey Mouse earlier. Um, the, the thing with Mickey Mouse now is that he's, he's not in films anymore. He hasn't been for a long, long time. But he is the icon of Disneyland. And it's like the global empire of Disney. I'm not sure whether Ghibli's going to be in the empire business anytime soon. Um in the same way that Disney is. But I think you look at the Netflix deal and the HBO Max deal, that these films are more accessible than ever to as many people as ever. And there's a theme park around the corner. It's perhaps less about getting that kind of direct monetary spend of the purchase of the DVD or the purchase of the Blu-ray. But the brand expansion is absolutely in effect right now, I think. But, but they've always been done it in their own way and in their own speed it's not like they're 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 doing this half-heartedly they're doing it in their own way but this definitely seems like how do you live the film that's currently in production will likely be Miyazaki's final film because if he takes as long as he did to make this one with another one he'll be close to 100 or something um so I, I'm sure the people at Ghibli, it's a very different company to what it was in the 80s and 90s where they were part of an umbrella corporation. Then they went independent in the 2000s off the back of the success of films like Spirited Away and were very um, productive in terms of setting up this museum that was the home of the history of animation. They've set up their own labels in, the st in, in, in Japan to release films by international filmmakers on home video and in cinemas they, they were very very active and now they've taken their staff back to a very small crew just to work on how do you live managing their international reputation another thing that we didn't just mention as part of the international side is they finally had if they finally put together an exhibition of Miyazaki's work to go outside of Japan you go on Ghibli's website, they always have a few touring exhibitions going around Japan, celebrating various aspects of their history and legacy. But the one that's currently in LA at the Academy Museum about Miyazaki is the first outside of Japan. So I suppose they are now moving into what in music we sometimes call legacy management, where 
say Bob Dylan may still be making albums in the background, but he has a separate team that's finally putting out all of the bootleg series um, to cement the long-term reputation. They do, of course, have the other Miyazaki, the younger Miyazaki, Goro Miyazaki, who is um, Hayao Miyazaki's son, who has been a controversial figure for fans and within the studio because he was brought in to direct Tales from Earthsea, having never animated in his life. He, his background was in landscape architecture and he'd um, managed the project of building the Ghibli Museum and off the back of that they thought hey you can direct a film and uh, people thought you know that, that people uh, believe that to be quite a sorry it's a quite divisive effect yeah yeah Miyazaki himself uh, sort of you quote him as sort of going yeah it was good it's all honest and it's not like honest what the hell does that mean well you can accuse them of nepotism but actually no it wasn't nepotism at all because Miyazaki senior um hated the idea of his son uh riding on his coattails to direct but Goro Miyazaki now has several features to his name a tv series he is trying to innovate in his own way they he just directed the first fully 3d cg animated ghibli film Earwick and the witch which didn't really set the world on fire wasn't a massive hit particularly in japan either fans are a bit sort of disgusted by it i think is a, a way to put it because it looks like ghibli but they're on 3d models mm. and um so much yeah john i don't, I don't think the food in earwig and the witch will uh quite have the same effect <laughs> as the, the food in ponyo uh no, like, you don't think a 3d cgi shepherd's pie really exudes ghibli energy it's quite a strange thing to look at <laughs> i mean I just, my mouth is not watering <laughs> <laughs> but but i suppose he is still, he is now a filmmaker in his early middle age who I'm sure wants to keep making films, whether that's at Ghibli or not. So it's whether they'll then move down a generation and become the Goro Miyazaki studio. That doesn't really sound like it'll have the same heft, but it will be fascinating to come back in a decade and see what they're like, because there's no, in the way that Disney, when Walt died, were able to pass on to a new generation. They had the talent to do that. And also the corporation that needed to do that. Ghibli doesn't necessarily have that, so it, it would be fascinating to see what, what happens next. Yeah, and, and what about you guys? The, the the podcast is ongoing, and is there ever? Yeah, is, are you? Uh, do you have a sort of end point in mind, or are you, are you just going to keep it rolling and following the whole uh, the whole sort of phenomenon internationally as it as it continues? I feel like Lee Child when he gets asked whether he's ever going to kill off Jack. <laughs> Have you got a Reichenbach Falls for your Olivia <laughs> Tech? <laughs> uh, well, so what we've been doing on the podcast is is expanding out. We knew that we really only had a twenty four episode run for to cover the Studio Ghibli films, and then that we expanded into doing interviews with different artists. Michael already mentioned Luca, Lu, Enrico Casarossa, who directed Luca, and we have lots of different animators, musicians coming on. Like so, Arlo Parks came on to talk about. Um, writing her album and watching a Ghibli film each morning before going in the studio. So lots of different perspectives on how these films inspire people, which has been great fun. Um, but then keeping it, keeping it old school back to the traditional format, we've just been looking at other studios or directors whose work we can kind of chart a course through and tell a story with. So cartoon saloon who made Wolfwalkers, which came out last year. Um, we made a, 
short series looking at all of their films, which is only five features, um, all of which are very, very good. And then we looked at Satoshi Kon, another great Japanese director, very, very different to Ghibli. So we, so for listeners, a bit of um, bit of whiplash really from our soft, soft core Ghibli feeling to going into Perfect Blue. Um, but that that's kind of what we're thinking now is what where can we find these other stories to tell um, that kind of have, if not a direct connection to Ghibli, uh, a, a similar approach and contained narrative i think within their filmography that we can explore and what's the experience of writing the book been like if you do you feel uh, you'd like to that's something you'd like to do again oh the experience was great um I, i'd like it because uh i remember during the first lockdown everyone making jokes about well this is finally the moment that you can all write the book or the screenplay that you've been saying you're going to write and like we did the deal for the book in February 2020. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, we we quite literally did. We did write that book. Um, we we wrote the entire thing without meeting, uh, and then we only got together once it was finished and it was out. It was a uh, very strange, but it was quite nice because we, the way that we did it, we knew that there are the certain number of films, and we chopped up the time that we were going to be writing to be certain films at certain times so we knew that the other person even if they weren't nearby on the other side of london on the other side of a zoom call they were kind of in the same headspace thinking about the same films uh so it's like i had uh like a bfi library on call that if i needed to check something i could just uh drop a whatsapp over to michael and he could say oh actually i think you'll find that toshio suzuki said this would it would he be pulling that face when he said that Yes. <laughs> for for the listeners, that's uh, an extremely handsome. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. of course. But yeah, it, it was it was such a yeah a dream for me because um, similarly to Ghibli, I was you know, when I said I was the right age to catch that wave. I, I was just the right age to catch the sort of back end of the the great Faber film books era in the nineties, where there were just so many great film books coming out. All writers that I admired would have their book. And then I finally then would graduate uni and go out into the great wide world myself. And then the p- publishing industry kind of collapsed for a while <laughs> off the back of the financial crisis. It's coming back. It's coming back, Michael. It seems to be a little bit, yeah. yeah. No, on the strength um, of my podcast, it's coming absolutely. back. Absolutely. But so, Faber, so being got, a... Faber got in touch and said they've sold five books this year, and <laughs> four of them are directly because of this podcast. But uh, being able then to, you know, to write write this book which we through making the podcast through watching these films and talking about them we knew there was a gap in the bookshelf amazing academic work amazing work by film critics speaking more to a a, a i don't say hardcore but a, a an already involved audience people like jonathan clements and helen mccarthy andrew osmond doing incredible work alex to dr witt on the younger end as well but we knew from maybe a little bit from our experience in in our day jobs jake working with curzon directly engaging audiences there me working with you know with film four directly engaging audiences there a more casual mainstream audience who are also curious but want to be eased in from the shallow end into the deep end we knew there was a gap on the shelf for that because most ghibli books come from academic imprints as well so we were very keen for this book to be accessible and broadly available and the great thing is 
going out on the road after everything Jake just said about working getting locked down remotely then admittedly it seems that we're swinging back with the pendulum pendulum swinging back virus wise but we have had a good few months where things seem to be opening up a bit more so we were able to go to cinemas show a film do a signing do a discussion and people have been really responding well to it that's that's always been an element of this for us which is talking with other fans of these films in a way that doesn't put us on a pedestal or anything it's um it's all part of the conversation for us excellent excellent wonderful and uh the last question i i want to uh, ask both of you is directly related to the film book uh you're talking about favor and favor earlier which is um i always ask everyone to recommend a film book for our listeners so i'd like to ask you for your film book recommendation michael is now looking at his bookshelves directly behind him <laughs> usually i email people and tell them that i'm going to ask this question <laughs> i don't know if I you done, can re- I done, i've done my research i already knew ah. mine, michael come on <laughs> i don't know if you can recognize any john <laughs> i can see uh Nah, it's too unfocused for me. I, no, 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 it's, it's, it's fine. Uh, Jake can go first if he's doing his research. Well, I just wanted so the, to have a bit of spirit of, um, of improvisation. That's why I'm Well, I'm he's got that. on top there is the, the three green spines of the Ghibliotech book in English, French and Spanish, which has been an amazing perk of this whole thing is seeing it get picked up in other territories and actually imagining poor translators having to sit through and do it. Has it been picked up in Italy yet? We, I don't know whether we can say, because like, oh, okay. it's still like, I think Talks. it's meant yeah. to be, Talks but we up. don't, yeah, yeah, early next year. So we yeah, we, we only really know that it's definitely coming out when we actually see a real copy. Right, so, see, um, yeah, <laughs> we know there are potential other territories, but um, yeah, can't really say. Italy being one of them. Um, I hope so. All right, okay, I'll jump in. Uh, so my pick has got to be Spielberg, Truffaut and Me by Bob Balaban which I think is just a, a lovely diary anyway. Like Bob Balaban is a fantastic writer. I've actually just um, reached the point in my Seinfeld rewatch where Bob Balaban's appearing as an executive at NBC and he, he is just such a lovely actor. He's got such a lovely presence and he writes in the way that you imagine him to. He is so, he's so welcoming. He has absolutely no ego whatsoever. Uh, even though he is starring in the next big Steven Spielberg film at the time of writing. Uh, It's all about him on the set of Close Encounters, hanging out with Spielberg, Truffaut. He's playing uh, the the character that Truffaut plays. Balaban is playing his translator. So he spends this whole set, months and months, hanging out with him. And it's such a beautiful peek into the creative process of an actor and of a director, particularly for those curious about how directors work because you've got a director who is being paid to be an actor who is a very different director to the director that he's working for and so that the interactions throughout are hilarious um and for yeah any spielberg heads out there uh just a great window into the production of close encounters so that, that's that's my that's my fave I read that when I was uh, years and years and years ago. It must have been in the 80s. And I think it was like, I don't think it had that title or it, it might have used material from it or something, but it was just like a Close Encounters diary or something. It was a real, mm. like, like a real spin-off of the film, if you know what I mean. Yes, because he, him. I've, got, I've got a second edition that was done near the time of Gosford Park. Um, right. So when he was doing more writing stuff again. And so I think it 
was was under a different name but i think as a, it's a great one for a student to read particularly a film student who's maybe interested in the practical side of things because it's really lovely to read about a spielberg set and you think how um how kind of focused something like that must be and how professional it must be and it's just chaos it's always <laughs> chaos and it's just reassuring to know that i love there's a story i'm not sure if i i, I remember it from that off and somebody else telling me but there's a story of Truffaut uh, looking at all the things that spielberg was doing and all the huge studios and all the huge effects and everything and spielberg kept saying well what, what do you think and he was like yeah it's um, yeah yeah it's okay yeah and then the one the little boy's bedroom and Truffaut was, how did you do this? This is amazing, <laughs> you know, because because that was real. That was like, you know, oh, wow, you recreated a little boy's bedroom. That's perfect, you know. Spielberg was, what? You did like the UFO and you like this? <laughs> Which speaks to the different sort of uh, directors that they are, I think. Um, uh, Michael, what, have, you, have you come up with one? Well, I just wanted to make sure that since we're talking about Ghibli on this podcast, I wanted to give a shout out to some of the great other Ghibli books on the shelf. So many fans of Ghibli will know that there are two volumes of Miyazaki's own written work that's been translated into English. One's called Turning Point. Sorry, one's called Starting Point and one's called Turning Point. Starting Point is better than Turning Point because that has more of his own writing and sketches, um, directorial memoranda, proposals for all of the films. Starting Point goes up to Mononoke um, in 1997. Start, uh, turning point is spirited away and then everything going crazy afterwards and th therefore he he does fewer editorials and fewer bits of writing and it's more interviews and press conferences there's some great stuff in there like the venice film festival um on stage chats between him and nick park the year where um uh yeah, where, where they're doing a lot of press together because Ghibli release Curse of the Were-Rabbit, the Aardman film in Japan. And in fact, it actually beats Ghibli at the Oscars that year. It's sort of a bit of trivia that we like to like to wheel out because it's released in, t uh, in competition with Howl's Moving Castle. Um, but in terms of in terms of books that are not written by Ghibli people, there's, of course, Helen McCarthy's book on Hayao Miyazaki, Master of Animation, which is out of print, but it's so good if you do find uh, a secondhand copy. Her anime encyclopedia that she writes with Jonathan Clements is still just the gold standard for understanding the world of Japanese animation. A recent favourite is Susan Napier's Miyazaki World. She's coming from a point of view of more of an academic background than someone who's steeped in the world of anime, but she does a really great discursive biographical journey of Miyazaki through his films and manga and other works. Yeah, um, the chapter the chapter in that on the manga is really, really good. Maybe my favourite bit in it. And I would, because we've got a lot of book listeners, I'm assuming, um, I wouldn't, Michael mentioned it earlier, but do kind of splash the cash and go for the Naushka manga. It's about a thousand pages long, but it's absolutely worth it. It's a very good doorstop as well once you're done with it. But in terms of outside of Ghibli and animation, I don't know if this is a recommendation. I'm surprised when I heard you say Truffaut, Jake, I thought you were going Hitchcock Truffaut. That's the book that I've returned to time and again over the years because I'm you know, Hitchcock's filmography is one that 
it's so big you can't watch it in one go you have to chip away at it over the decades and that is a book that allows you to contextualize that but in a similar vein maybe the book i wouldn't say recommend but a film a film book i always return to is easy riders raging bulls and again i'm very much of that generation where that was a five pound purchase from music zone or fop or whatever the remainders bookshop would be and even though his peter biskin's writing has been undermined his uh, his uh, uh, interviews have been deemed lousy and contradicted by almost all of the new hollywood filmmakers he's profiling across that book it still holds quite a strong sway over the way that i view the careers of people like francis ford coppola george lucas steven spielberg particularly george lucas i'd say um because the image of George Lucas as in some ways the great visionary experimental filmmaker of that community who almost by accident creates the behemoth of Star Wars but then and, and then is taken along with his ranch with ILM with all of the other innovations that he creates becomes a mogul by accident in some ways and then despite saying over and over again for many decades, I, he wants to go away and make his own small personal film, he never can. And I think one particularly insightful sort of character sketch that he makes in the book is that Lucas was a great collaborator. He was a great fan of his friends. He, be that De Palma or Milius or Coppola, he, he loved them and worked with them. You look at pictures of the guys from, from the 70s, they were very much a tight-knit crew. He showed Star Wars to those guys to get their feedback. But then in the closing pages of the book, as the 80s turned to the 90s, and you have Ford Coppola and Scorsese very much returning to the, the type of filmmaking that they made in the 70s in order to come back from the brink of bankruptcy or uh, disrepute within the Hollywood system. Lucas is sitting on a massive pile of cash in the middle of nowhere, separate from the community he, re he really wanted to be a part of. And of course, I think that in the years since that's been borne out by the fact that he then made the prequel trilogy attempted to do something different with it that no one seemed happy with and it feels that when he finally cashed in his Lucasfilm check to Disney and became overnight one of the richest men in the world um, that was almost a throwing in of the towel that's a very specific read of Lucas's life and other writers will say that he was a great family man and instead felt great responsibility towards his family in terms of the Lucasfilm employees he wanted to keep them all employed through the 80s and that's why he would keep making these films instead of betting the farm in the way that Francis Ford Coppola would um, but it's still an image of George Lucas the Scrooge McDuck figure swimming in a pile of money in a mansion in the middle of nowhere who really just wanted to go and make his super <laughs> super eight film somewhere experimental feature but I don't know John I know it's a controversial book no I mean that's of its time that they're really easy to read I really enjoyed his uh, his latest one about the sky is falling and sort of apocalyptic sort of filmmaking in the in the new millennium I think he's a really I I, I like Peter Biskin because I don't necessarily agree with his thesis but 
at the same time, at least he has a thesis. <laughs> you know, he, he does have a really solid argument that, uh, yeah, you could talk about his methodology in the interviews and all the rest of it, but uh, uh, it, it gives you something to kick against. And it, it was definitely one of those, Easy Riders was definitely one of those um, books that, uh, you know, got me into reading and watching other films, got me into reading other books and watching other films. So. John, I'm plagued with a very, very slow reading speed. Um, so as much as I love reading, uh, my my Goodreads target uh, often eludes me. So with your knowledge of film books, what would be your picks on the shorter end of things? On the shorter end of things? Well, I mean, the BFI classics are the... Uh, 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 bite-sized and some of those were are absolutely brilliant i mean i love the the one on thin red line is really good there's um camilla paglia on um on the birds is is really good so if 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 you want something that's really pocket-sized and and uh yeah that that those would i would point you towards those um i think the interview books like the favor and favor sort of uh, director and you know, so-and-so, Scorsese on Scorsese or Herzog on Herzog. Those are all superb. I've read the Paul Cronin Herzog on Herzog, which is called uh, A Guide for the Perplexed. And they have the benefit that you don't necessarily have to read them all the way through because like with the Hitchcock Truffaut, you can just follow them chapter by chapter as you're watching the movies or, you know, and dip in and dip out. They're not, um, I don't think they're necessarily even written to be read you know, from from beginning to end. But one of the uh, one of the bigger books that I read this this year. So this is going outside your your stricture. So so was... to not answer your question. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's more a comment than a question. <laughs> um, no, but I, I'm trying to think of the best book I've read this year, best film book I've read this year. Um, and now, I remember you did read ours. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Well, okay, the second best film book I read this year. Uh, um, oh God, there, there were loads. I mean, uh, Glenn Frankel, his books, we had him on the pot uh, last week. His books are, are amazing and they're really readable and they're all 250, 300 page long. And he did one on Midnight Cowboy, which is his latest one, which is superb. And it really makes you, I think he makes a very good argument for Midnight Cowboy being like one of those underappreciated new Hollywood movies that it doesn't get quite the coverage that um, films like uh, The Godfather and Conversation and Taxi Driver and things like that get. And I think he's, uh, I think he, he's right. And I think he's a, it's a brilliant book. Um, he also did one on The Searchers and another one on High Noon. All three of them are great. And he's great because he's not really a film guy. He's a, He ran the Washington Post foreign office for decades in London and in Israel, I think, in Jerusalem. Uh, so he's sort of, this is kind of a retri retirement project, really, that he's just, you know, why not? Uh, I, well, I don't think he's retired. I think he went into teaching journalism and he used this opportunity. So th those are really good. Um, and The Long Goodbye, Sam Watson's book on, on uh, Chinatown is also really good, but and again, that's about three hundred and fifty pages. It's not a, it's not a hugely long. The long one I was going to mention was Otto Friedrich's City of Nets, which is a 
it's about classical Hollywood. It's about the, you know, uh, the Casablanca to Huac is the is the sort of time frame, and it's very much uh, where Barton Fink and all those stories come from. Of you know, uh, it's just it's just it's like reading a novel, uh, it, and uh, it's the war and peace of Golden Age Hollywood. You know. That's a great That's... one for the back cover. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> anything, anything to publicise the podcast. John Blaisdell, writers on film. I, I, I'll, I, I'm willing to, uh, to, to, yeah, to get myself out there anyway, <laughs> anyway I can. But it is that, true. That's, that's what's so good about this podcast is there are, you know, film. In, in, if you went into a bookshop, would be a section bundled together with TV, and if you're you know, if you're unlucky, maybe with music and performing arts or something as well. But even within just film, there are so many genres of book. So even within what you were just saying, I, yeah, there are some single film books that, that, that were on the shelf there, and I was looking over my shoulder. But the, recently, the books I've really enjoyed dipping into are Christine Vachon's books. She's the producer uh, behind Killer Films, with like with Todd Haynes, very key figure in queer film movement and the independent cinema movement in the America, America in the 80s and 90s and onwards and she released two books which are sort of half transcribed interviews half diaries there's one great which is the one which is the can diary for velvet goldmine and it's just a bit of a look into mid not what what can was like in the mid 90s which was very different to what it is now if you go now um and at a point where we've already had many of the independent trailblazers of the 80s but now we have another generation of those with 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 Todd Haynes with the likes of Velvet Goldmine which was supposed to be his breakout film but was a very troubled production so that that's another genre of book there's there's um ha, John have you talked about uh, suspects the david thompson book yes it's all on the podcast. no i'm i am trying to I'm, i need to try to get him on because yeah i really love that book that's such a great so book. so that's a book ever since there was that sight and sound collaborative feature a few years ago about books about film or like like novels about film i think it was um that's been on my list and actually on the book tour with jake went to hastings a couple of weekends ago i found a copy of that and there was a phase in my life when i was uh, a film student where i would if i ever found of a volume of uh the biographical dictionary of film i'd buy it so i currently have three editions at the bottom <laughs> of the shelf there so because because the great thing is is he changes the entries uh, between the, the editions and you can see how his opinion on betty davis changes over the decades <laughs> so there are those as well but not necessarily one for you to read on on the beach jake no no you make me think of um film art that david boardwell because i went my uh i, I was given a, a the fourth edition of boardwell's film art uh, before I went to go and do my degree. And at the time they were on the 10th edition had just been published. And the I just remember the the uni, because they're all just bloody money grabbers, saying <laughs> you have you have to have the 10th edition. You have to. Everyone has to go and buy the 10th edition. I've got my charity shop 4th edition, which is like, and these new things, VHS tapes. Um, uh, but it's still, like the film analysis is still the same. It's just the technology is different. And, you know, I still, I still managed to get through 
my first course without having to buy the 10th edition of film art. <laughs> How flick books are ruining the, the scenoscope. <laughs> <laughs> it's devastating technology to the uh, magic lantern business here. Uh, listen, guys, this has been absolute, an absolute pleasure um, talking to you. And uh, I, I love the book. And um, I think any fans of the podcast will love it. I think anyone who doesn't necessarily listen to the podcast will also love it. Anyone who's a fan of Ghibli will love it. So uh, thanks so much for, for talking to me. Thanks so much, John. So that was myself, Jake and Michael in conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. We went really into the movies. It was great to to explore them one one more time with with Michael and Jake. And there are a couple of films that I haven't seen that I will be looking at after having read uh, Ghibliotech. There's, there's definitely some recommendations in there of films that are a little bit more obscure than the than the biggies, shall we say? And I'll go to with fresher eyes having having read uh, Jake and Michael's book. So it's going to be after Christmas, uh, the next time there's an episode drops, uh, which will be great. I, well, I can give you what the next episode is, actually. I'm going to be talking to Michael Benson about his book on the making of 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's a brilliant book, great read, and it deals with one of my favorite films of all time. It's definitely in my top two movies i would say i'm not sure if it comes first or second but it's it's definitely up there all that it remains for me to do now is to thank elliot atkins for the music uh as uh, anybody who listens to the podcast regularly uh will will no, it gives a really good feel to the to the whole experience. And Ali Harwood, who helped out with the art so that I can present it in a way that's quite nice as well. Okay, and, th- and of course, thank you to everybody for listening. Until the next week, goodbye. On a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns.